did just um, say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for being with us and we just pray that you'll bless us this day and all that we do um, and be with the reading and with Anthony as he preaches too. These things we pray in your name. Amen. This morning we're reading from Luke 9, 28 to 49. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the, on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure when he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Jesus said to, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them, him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I going to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marvelling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is all the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. 
But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Here ends the reading. Okay, let's see what happens. Good morning, everybody. Greetings from, from Cobden. And thank you for the opportunity that you've given me to lead you in this time of, of worship, of the preaching of the word. And um, I'm a little bit nervous and anxious. I shouldn't be. I know the Bible tells me I shouldn't be. So I'm going to pray again. We can't pray too much, can we, Glenn? So uh, please, let's pray before I start. Our gracious God, we humble ourselves once again before you, especially as we have just heard your word spoken and read to us. And Father, we pray that your word would work powerfully in each of us. Give us willing hearts, humble hearts, teachable hearts, so that your word might change and transform our lives. Lord, help us to listen. Help us to be still. Help us to hear your voice so that we would respond in bringing glory and honor to your great and holy and precious name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life uh, has its cycles, doesn't it? It has its, its ups and its downs. You get married, and there's the honeymoon. There's the indulging in each other, the indulging in food, indulging in, in new places maybe. And then you get home. Day after day, there's the dirty dishes. There's the floors that need sweeping. There's the toilet seats that have been left up. Toothbrushes, that, toothpaste that have been squeezed at the wrong spots. Clothes on the floor. Life has its cycles, doesn't it? The ups and the downs. And it's the same in our walk with the Lord too, isn't it? We experience ups and we experience downs too. Maybe you've gone on some overseas mission before. Maybe a whole week-long convention, uh, a church family camp, some conference of some sort. And, and there are brilliant talks, uh, deep spiritual conversations and, and experiences. You sing and worship like never before. There's feeling, there's passion, there's a real sense of God and His greatness. And this is what it should be like, shouldn't it? There should be a, a thrill and an excitement in our walk with the Lord. We should be able to see clearly God's power and His, His grace and His glory. We should be able to see this in worship, in our conversations, in our day-to-day -day experiences. But it's not always like this, is it? One week, one month later, you're frustrated by life. You're down in the dumps. Life is is hard. Worship is, is cold. Everyone's a bother. Your sin returns, your guilt, your shame, life's regrets. One moment we're up on the mountain, and next we're, we're back down the mountain. And it's down the mountain where we quickly forget who Jesus is. We forget the cross. That we forget the cost that Jesus spoke about. Down the mountain, life is like that. It, it, it's a cost, isn't it? Our life. 
It's difficult down on the mountain. There's sacrifice, there's self-denial, there's loving others, loving those who really irk you. There's a daily reminder of sin in your own life and weakness and selfishness. So how are we to deal with all this then? How are we meant to trust God through these ups and these downs? Well, today we go up the mountain with Jesus and three of his disciples. We go up for a bit where it's all thrilling and all exciting, but then we get back down to earth, back down the mountain where we face the day-to-day reality of following Jesus. Luke, the writer of this book, is, is trying to show Theophilus and us who Jesus really is. There are many ways Jesus uh, makes himself known. His, his teaching and his miracles all point to his identity. The good news of the kingdom of God is Jesus himself, isn't it? Now in chapter 9, Luke begins to show us how Jesus' future mi- mission would be taken on by his disciples. Jesus has called certain guys and Jesus is teaching them, he's equipping them for future mission. And this, we know, hasn't it? Has, has expanded now to every follower of Jesus. We, we all play a role in this mission. And a huge part of following Jesus is knowing who he really is. Peter, he is the first human person that Luke mentions in, in his gospel who gets who Jesus is. He is the Christ of God, Peter says. He is the promised Messiah sent by God to save and redeem and restore God's people. Yet, this idea of redeeming, of restoring, is not yet quite understood by the disciples. They still have a a national political mindset, agenda for Jesus. So when Jesus... When, when Jesus talks about suffering and rejection uh, and dying, his disciples don't get it. I think this is where often our struggle is too, isn't it? Jesus says about people following him, they'll have to deny themselves and bear a cross. What a downer. What a downer for the disciples. They've been given extraordinary power, haven't they? To, to, to heal and, and to drive out demons. But a big part of their mission would be suffering and sacrifice and self-denial. So how are these disciples to get their head around following Jesus and this way of the cross? How are we? How are we going to get our heads around all this? Well, let's do two things. Let's first go up the mountain with Jesus and then secondly, we'll go back down, down the mountain with Jesus and his disciples there too. So let's begin by going up the mountain. If you look at verses 28, I hope you've got your Bibles. Keep it open because um, you need to discern what I'm saying. Brilliant. It's up on the screen too. If you look at verse 28, Jesus takes three of his disciples up a mountain to pray. And if we're ever to get through our struggles and our sufferings, we must go to God in prayer. Don't make it your last resort. Don't... Make it your first, your first choice every day. Some of the most precious and intimate moments of, of the Christian life, isn't it, can be found when praying with your Heavenly Father. 
Well, in this case, spectacular things are happening. Verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to accomplish, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Here, Jesus is, is, is utterly transformed. All the glory and the splendor of his eternal being was, was, was revealed, is no longer hidden here on the mountain. And Jesus gives three of these guys a glimpse of his majestic glory. It's, it's like a window from the past. The, the always existing glory that Jesus had uh, for all time with his Father. But it's also a, a bit of a preview into the future. What Luke is saying to us here, remember he's just talked about suffering and the cross and, and dying. And Luke is saying to us here, it's all worth it. Look at the glory of Christ. It's all worth it. The future will be so wonderful and so, so forever. It's worth it. Following Jesus is worth it. Now you see, throughout Jesus' life on earth, he had laid aside his glory. His glory was, was kind of veiled. It was hidden. It was unseeable. But here, for a brief moment on this mountain, Jesus' glory is seen. It is seen in all its majesty and splendor. And three guys get to see it. You've got, to, you've got to understand that this itself is quite remarkable. If you know your Old Testament, you might think of Exodus. Moses, he, he was someone who, who got close to seeing the glory of God, wasn't he? Do you remember? He, he, he asked God that. But then when it came to it, he had to keep his eyes covered, didn't he? As God went past, and he only got to see a glimpse of the back of God. Maybe you think about Israel, terrified about the prospect of God actually speaking to them from the mountain. Send God instead, they said. Forty days and forty nights, God spoke with Moses and God gave Moses the law. The glory of God was so magnificent that it left a print on Moses' face. And even Moses, he had to cover his face for the sake of the people. Do you see the picture? The glory of God and people, they don't mix. God is so perfect, so holy, so magnificent that you and I, we are so filthy, broken, and wicked. You see, God's glory is really our condemnation. It will end us. We can't stand before God and live. So for these three guys to see the glory of Christ and actually live, it's remarkable. God is being gracious and kind to spare them of being ruined. And we're also reminded at this point too, aren't we? The fact that Jesus came into the world and set aside his glory is also another wonderful reminder of God's grace and kindness to you and I. God comes to us in such a way that through Jesus, 
we can know God and His glory. We can walk with Him and see Him and hear Him speak without being destroyed. So up on the mountain, spectacular, wonderful things are happening. And we're told Moses and Elijah are there. They're not dead. There is life after death. And best of all, Moses, he is where he's always wanted to be, face to face with God. He doesn't just see the back of God any longer, does he? He sees the full glory of God in Christ. Now, a lot of people, commentators, talk about Moses here being the kind of guy who perhaps summarizes the Old Testament law, and then you've got Elijah who summarizes the Old Testament prophets. You add the two together, and you've got the whole Old Testament. And so here on the mountain, the, old, the whole Old Testament is being personified by these two guys. Uh, I don't see it. Maybe we can find too much sometimes. But if you think about these two guys, Exodus 33, Moses, he's a mountain climber. And that's where he goes to meet with God. Elijah, 1 Kings uh, 19, he also climbs the mountain, doesn't he? To meet with God. And that's what Jesus is doing here with his disciples. Moses and Elijah in the past, they, don't, they didn't get to see God's face. They got to hear his voice. But now James, John and Peter, they get to see God in the flesh. Verse 32. Engulfed by that cloud, they hear God speak. Verses 34 and 35. You see, I think the Old Testament high points were often at the mountain of God. God would then give a glimpse of His glory. But all that glory, all that Old Testament high points is now being superseded here because these three guys get a glimpse of the glory of Christ. They get to see the glory of the eternal Son of God. They get to see the one who is greater than Moses and Elijah and all the prophets. Do you see? The transfiguration here, it gives us a glimpse of the future glory of Christ, risen and exalted at the right hand of God. And His glory will be our glory if our faith remains in Him. Colossians 3 verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. It's a promise. It's wonderful. So then how do we respond to something like this? Have a look at verse 36. How do we respond? Awe and silence. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. How full on is that? When was the last time reading about the Lord in the Gospels brought you to a complete awestruck silence. Have you ever been silenced by the gospel? Because we should be. For the past nine chapters, Luke has been gradually, I think, ramping up our awareness of who Jesus is and what He is doing. Why? To bring us 
a stunned silence. Now, it does take a lot to silence some of us. But this is what God does through the gospel. He really brings us to a point where we really do have nothing to say. Where we're just left gobsmacked. And we ought to pray, shouldn't we? We ought to pray that God would silence us more often as He continues to reveal to us the majestic glory of His Son. Opening our mouths is sometimes our biggest mistake, isn't it? And earlier in verses uh, 33, when Peter becomes aware of what's going on, and then Elijah and Mo- Moses are about a turn to, to leave, in desperation, what does he do? To prolong this mountaintop experience, Peter opens his mouth. He wants to set up a camp uh, for these great men. Now, it's really quite ironic because eight days before, Peter had opened his mouth and said perhaps the most profound thing he's ever said in his life, calling Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And now he doesn't know what he's saying. And he speaks as though Moses and Elijah and Jesus is just three great guys on, on equal par. Do you see what Peter is doing here? He's mistaking the glory of Christ. He mistakes the glory of Jesus and elevates Moses and Elijah up to Jesus. And not only that, he mistakes God's purposes here too. You see, Jesus and these two guys are having a chat. You might remember verse 31. They were speaking about Jesus' exodus, uh, Jesus' departure, which was to come, which would take place in, in Jerusalem. If you look at verse 31, we haven't read it, but Jesus sets his face on Jerusalem, and the rest of Luke's account really is, is Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, where we know is where he is crucified. But Jesus has already stated to these disciples, they know, they've been told by Jesus that he will, he will be rejected, he must suffer, and die. And then he must rise again. But the disciples don't get it. No matter how many times Jesus will explain to them, they don't get it. The gospel message is sometimes, uh, is often for us too, isn't it? A, a strange and an awkward message that people won't get. But why don't the disciples get it? You see, here's the thing. As great as seeing Jesus in all his glory might be, would have been, It's not enough. You see, they're going to have to come down this mountain. Jesus will have to go to Jerusalem. He must die. And it's only after the cross that these disciples are able to finally see and make sense of the glory of Christ. And again, isn't it? When we speak about the message of the gospel, when we proclaim the gospel to others, it's often the heart of that message, the cross, which people struggle to get, isn't it? Anyway, the mountaintop experience was nice. And, and they can be, can't they? Mountaintop experiences can be wonderful moments of encouragement and joy. And they should remind us that following Jesus is worthwhile. Worthwhile. And God sometimes gives us these moments to help us in the down-the-mountain moments of life. Because really, that's, that's often where life is, isn't it? The reality is, life is more often defined by what happens down the mountain, where life is frustrating and hard, where we are weak and helpless and discouraged. It's down the mountain where we really face our temptations. 
And instead of being captured by Christ in all his brilliance, we're quick to be captured by the world, by others, even by ourselves, which leaves us only what miserable and longing for more. So as we go down the mountain, we see in our text that the glory of Christ was not enough to stop these disciples from abandoning Jesus. In verse 37, Jesus and his disciples, they're back down the mountain. And Luke tells us briefly of four things that will happen. And each bit shows us how dismal and pathetic these disciples really were. It seems as they get back down, every time they open their gob, Jesus has to tell them to zip it. Jesus says, stop that. Don't be stupid. It's not their finest hour. Which again, it's a good reminder because if Luke or any of these disciples were to write a a made-up version of of, of a Messiah, why would they portray themselves in such a a pathetic uh, light? Just gives it a bit more credibility. Anyway, let's look at these four bits. The first one is at verse 38 to 41. Behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. These disciples, remember, have been given power and authority to do things before. Maybe they think they can just do it in their own strength here. In their own strength, they are weak. Here is again a quick reminder of the mess and broken world that we all live in. The the poor boy is weak. The desperate father is helpless, and so are the disciples here. Jesus can help them, and he is right there with them. And he does, verse 42. He heals the boy. And verse 43, everyone is amazed. Another glimpse here of God's glory. But Jesus is disturbed. He's distressed by everyone's faithlessness. The next bit already starts in verse 43, I think it was. Yep. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So here Jesus places his glory and his suffering again hand in hand. But these disciples, they can't get their head around it all. Glory and suffering don't seem to fit our thinking. That's true, isn't it? So much of the confusion people have with the gospel is, is that really trying to work out why Jesus had to die. The glorious, eternal Son of God became least a servant so that you and I could live. It is through His suffering that He would be made King. Through His suffering that we would see and know His glory. And when we see that, when we can both hold his glory and his suffering together, then we can give ourselves over to him, can't we? We can submit ourselves to him as king and we can serve others like him. The third bit is in verse 46. 
An argument arises among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. So the disciples, they're they're arguing about who is the greatest. Here is the future missionaries of the church. It's pathetic, isn't it? But yeah, it's it's easy easy for us too, isn't it? It's easy for us to worry about where we fit in. What do we do? We we, we measure people around us. Oh yeah, they're above me. They're below me. And we have our own ways, perhaps, of ranking people. What do we do? We strive ourselves to get up the rank. Jesus has no place for ranking systems. In Christ, your identity is in Him. And there is no one greater. And as Christians, we are all slaves, aren't we? We are all servants. There is no one lower. This is the outlook that Jesus calls His followers to have. The last bit, the fourth bit, is in verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. Uh, But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Here's the case of of Jesus' followers being somewhat exclusive. They are dismissive. They think perhaps they themselves are the special few, not them. Surely he's not one of us. Perhaps they're offended that others are, are, are creeping now into their turf. Keep in mind, they've been just rebuked of not trusting Jesus to help them driving out demons. And Jesus says to them, don't stop them. Let them. All are welcome. My kingdom isn't, my, my kingdom is an inclusive kingdom. All are invited. And you see, it's going to take intense persecution and suffering for these disciples to get it, for God to finally get these guys bringing the gospel out to all people. And we have to learn, don't we? As far as possible, we are all to be inclusive. So you can see, you can see quickly down the mountain how quickly everything goes wrong. Jesus challenges the disciples' faithlessness. He challenges their determination uh, to do things in their own strength. He undermines their competitive spirit and he corrects their narrow-mindedness. These disciples are confused, ambitious, proud, power-hungry, and Jesus sets his face firmly towards Jerusalem and firmly puts them in their place. There is a real sense here, isn't there? That from this time on, there is now no mucking around. Jesus gets tough on his disciples. It is not long now, a couple of months, that Jesus will have with them. And now he is straight with them. When you or others, uh, when you or others you talk with are ever tempted to think that it would have been much easier to have met, met Jesus, to walk with Jesus, then think again. Think about these poor disciples. Think about these disciples as they're getting their, their hearts ripped out, their insides rearranged, and then put back together again. 
You see, far from being easy, walking with Jesus would have been intense. Jesus wants these guys to get it. He wants them to grow as disciples. He wants them to be godly. And that means pointing out their wrong actions, their wrong attitudes. Being around Jesus would have been an intense experience because it means confronting your own sin or at least having Jesus confront your own sin for you. How many of us think like this? Do we actually expect going into this week being confronted, corrected? As Jesus works in us by His Spirit, uh, through His Word, if we had the Spirit of Christ in us, and it's the same Spirit, isn't it? Shouldn't we expect the Spirit to confront us? We should. When we open the Word, which is the Word of Christ, it's the same Word. Shouldn't we expect the Word to confront us, expose us? Jesus, His Spirit, His Word, it is uncomfortable stuff. The Gospel exposes us. When was the last time? When was the last time you were horribly confronted with your own faithlessness or pride? When was the last time you were confronted with your desire for for power or prominence? When were you last confronted by your own self-interest? Seriously. When was the last time you, you were stopped in your tracks and you were like, Oh no, not again. See, the truth of the matter is, if we can't answer that, we are living unexamined lives in which we have no expectation of God to work in us through Jesus. If we believe and want God to work in us through Jesus, it means we should be having these hard chats with each other, shouldn't it? Willingly, uh, humbly, courageously speaking the gospel into each other's lives, confronting sin, exposing faithlessness, following Jesus... What are his expectations? Look, look, look back at verse 23. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, friends, here is the hard reality of the down-the-mountain stuff of following Jesus. So when are the disciples going to get it? Only after Jesus dies and rises again. We've spoken about going up a mountain and down again, but there's another hill that Jesus will climb, isn't there? It's Calvary's hill. He will climb this one by himself. He will do it for the sake of his faithless, unbelieving, twisted disciples. He'll do it for Moses and Elijah. He'll do it for all the Old Testament prophets who trusted God's word and waited for him to bring in his good word. And he'll do it for us. Jesus climbed Calvary's hill for the sins of people like you and me who who were not even known then or thought of by anyone except God himself. And it's here, isn't it? It's here 
that the glory and majesty of Christ is most spectacularly displayed. And it's only when Jesus breathes his last breath, it's only when Jesus dies, that in Luke's gospel and, and, and Mark's, that a human being will once again use his gob to declare who Jesus is correctly. And guess what? He's a Gentile. He's a centurion. Surely he was a righteous man. Surely he was the son of God. Luke gives us a really profound insight in chapters 23. Chapter 23, verses 44 to 45, we, we, we get told it's the sixth hour, and instead of bright clouds of glory, there was darkness. Darkness over the whole land for three hours. And it's not that clouds were just covering the sun, it was that the sun itself stopped shining. You might remember what happened at the temple. The curtain, it tore from top to bottom. This is a massive 60-foot curtain, perhaps four inches thick, torn to. The curtain, it prevented people entering the most holy place. It kept God safe. His glory was contained behind that curtain. Now as Jesus dies, the glory of God, it can't be contained any longer. There is no barrier the way to God is, is open for all who would call on Jesus. Call on Him as their Lord, as their Messiah. If we've understood Luke today, and if we believed, and if we believe that we are weak, I believe that I'm weak. We'll see it in our prayers, won't we? And if we don't see it in our prayers, maybe that's because we think we're great. Jesus teaches us that His strength is His solution to our weakness. And we receive that by His abounding grace. Listen to what Peter, one of the guys on the mountain, listen to what he would teach the church after Jesus had left them and, and after Jesus had filled him with the Holy Spirit. Peter would say this. This is from his letter, 2 Peter 1, 16-19. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by that majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain, and we had something more sure. The prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention. To which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Friends, we may never get to experience face to face the glory of Christ on this side of eternity like Peter, James, and John did. But friends, we get something better. We get something more certain. We get something more reassuring. And that is, according to Peter himself, the very Word of God. We've got the fully confirmed Word of God. Here is God's grace. 
Here in the Word, we have the Gospel. Every page of it speaks of the Gospel. It unpacks and reveals to us the glory of Jesus Christ. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is how you and I come to Him, to see Him and to know Him. Let's ask God that in His mercy, He would help us to treasure Christ, to enjoy Him, to be silent and awestruck before Him, and to be submitted in obeying Him this week and as many weeks that, he, that God gives us. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we cannot get our heads around the beauty and the majesty of the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is too much for us to grasp. Our minds and our will are too small. Oh Lord, help, help us by your Spirit to see Christ. Help us to see Him with more clarity than ever before. And help us to be still and quiet and to listen to Him as He speaks into our lives with words of correction, words of rebuke, with words of teaching and insight, and with words of wisdom and grace and, and motivation. And Father, help us to gladly respond to Him. Make us willing, make us courageous, make us like Him, so that we would reflect His glory into our dark, needy world. For we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.